right. What is up, IEA? Welcome to episode four. I am your co-host, Kevin Dagger. And with us, we have my lovely co-host, Quinn. What's up, guys? My name's Quinn. And uh, we have with us as well, Anthony. What's up, everybody? Anthony Lenza. I'm your Grand Marshal IEA. Happy back again. And we have with us a special guest, Dr. Kevin Lemoy. We're going to go by Kevin, and we're going to share the same common name. Did you get that name from Home Alone? Did your parents name <laughs> after Home Alone? I have, to, I have to ask my parents. It's probably the only, like, English movie they knew. Both my parents were Puerto <laughs> No, honestly, probably. Because <laughs> that's how I got my name, at least. My mom came to the States, and uh, I asked her, like, how, like, you know, why'd you name me Kevin? I watched him, <laughs> and I fell in love with the name Kevin. <laughs> love it. Yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> So Kevin is a psychiatrist and intern in New York City, right? I am, yeah, in yeah, Brooklyn. Brooklyn, sweet. And he is an SGU alumni. We brought him on just to pick his brain about psychiatry, his time at SGU. And yeah, hopefully this episode is super, super inciting into the field of psychiatry. So, so Kev, you know, what brought you into psychiatry? Yeah, man. So, you know, happy to be here. Thank you guys for, you know, for having me on. I think I think these kind of um, discussions are really important for, you know, SGU students because I think one of the things I realized was um, when I was at SGU, it's like a lot of people prepare you for, you know, kind of in medical school when we're there, we know we need to pass boards, we know we need to study, but a lot of the clinical stuff and rotations, it's kind of like when you get to term five, you're like, you know, what's next? What am I doing now? So, you know, I think these round kind of roundtable discussions are really important. So. Um, I'm glad you guys are doing this is, is my point. Um, so yeah, psychiatry for me was a pretty easy decision. I think a lot of people kind of struggle with picking a specialty, but you know, I have two older brothers that I grew up with. They're, um, former substance use disorder. So, you know, they got really hooked to opioids during the, um, during kind of the opioid pandemic. They had legitimate injuries. They both turned into like super, super intense addictions and they went from, you know, oxycotton to, you know, eventually, you know, heroin and fentanyl and, you know, the whole, the whole nine. So I kind of grew up with that and I was exposed to a lot of that early on. And, um, you know, even though my brothers are like 10 years older than me, each of them, um, I was kind of like their big brother. I helped them a lot with like finding a psychiatrist and, and getting them kind of out of that. So that was kind of my first real experience to psychiatry, which I was really fascinated by, you know, their progress and all these kind of great things. Um, and then I also have a pretty significant amount of like schizophrenia in my family. So I think, you know, a lot of that early on really kind of sparked my interest. So when I got to med school, it was always, you know, everyone starts asking you from day one, what do you want to be? What do you want to be? And I, I used to always say psychiatry, actually. And then there was a period where I kind of switched, maybe I am. And then I was like, I got to clinicals and I was like, definitely, we're, we're, we're going to stick with, uh, we're going to stick with psychiatry. So that, that's kind of how I got onto, onto the psych train. Nice. Yeah, psychiatry is a field that I think, like lately at least, has been booming. There's a lot of advancements in the field, right? Oh, absolutely, man. And it's becoming so competitive, too. I think, um, you know, most of the specialties, surgery, OBGYN, like the competitiveness is they've, you know, pretty standard throughout the year. Psych has, like, done a 180. I mean, you're looking at a specialty that used to be, you know, essentially if you had bad step scores, like it was family medicine or psychiatry. That was kind of the school of thought back then. And it is in the last, like, four to, like, six years and definitely in the last two years it's like the tables have turned i mean when you look at the match at the end of the match there's like 
no soap spots left for psych i mean because it's like just so popular now i think a lot of it is not only the advancements a lot of new stuff a lot of but also just so much more mental health awareness which i think is you know amazing i think there's really for the first time shedding light on a lot of like the deficits we have with mental health providers you know huge shortage of psychiatrists um and then the other aspect of it which is just just going to be really honest here right a lot of our generation millennials we want a good work-life balance you know working 90 hours a week doesn't really motivate us the way it motivated a lot of like our attendings and like you know i i can't tell you how many times i've met these attendants they're like oh back in my day i used to work like you know 200 hours a week i'm like that's great for you i don't want to do that <laughs> it's never <laughs> interested me um so there's also just this whole like work-life balance thing that people are like you know i can make really good money help people and also still like work nine to five tell me more so <laughs> i think that's like a lot of the popularity for psych as well which um so yeah so one thing dr kev uh that you touched on uh you were actually interested in this seems like for a long time now going into sgu how did you find your passion here at sgu was there any specific clubs that you were involved in any classes courses or even your experience at the general hospital yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I was someone who my entire time at SGU, my, my, you know, especially in the beginning was very much like, I want to do really well in exams. I want to make sure I, you know, um, stay focused. And so I initially for like my first three terms, I didn't do a lot of extracurricular stuff. Not that, um, you know, I recommend that. It's just the way I was like, I need to really learn how to study. I need to learn how to like time management. Um, so I really focused a lot of my, you know, kind of early terms really just to like, let me make sure I can learn how to take an exam, how to study for medical school. Um, but towards the end, I certainly started getting more involved. I think term five, that little, even though it's short lived, the clinical kind of exposure you get into the hospital in Grenada, is actually really important because, um, you know, especially for site, by the way, um, I will say some of the specialties, you know, the Grenadian General Hospital, there's not a lot you can do, you're kind of shadowing. So, you know, they're limited and to some degree, but you're also only in term five. So, I mean, it's like a really actually pretty good exposure, um, I think at that level, but the psych, the site, um, the two sites where we do the psych stuff, Grenada General, and I think the, the psych hospital, I can't remember which mountain up in Grenada, but they're actually really good experiences. I mean, you're getting like, you're getting the full psych ward feeling. Um, you know, I think the psychiatrists, they're really, really good. They're really passionate about it. So I, that was definitely my first, um, my first kind of experience with, with psych in that realm. And it, you know, I think I can compare it now to like, you know, my lived experience as a psych resident doctor here. And it's actually like, you know, that was a, that was a pretty good, um, exposure and a good amount of like, wow, this is actually, you know, I'm interested in, this is what I want to do. And this is, pretty similar to what, you know, as a psychiatrist in even New York City. Um, but, you know, I think for me, the one thing I always tell people, even though I never, like I said, I wasn't too involved with clubs and things like that, you know, I was an IEA. Um, so, you know, academic, you know, I think all of that looks great, but the more involved you can get, the better. And, you know, it's one thing that I do regret to some degree, because even in my clinicals, like third and fourth year, right, um, I was more focused on steps. So it's like, I'm always very like academically driven. So a lot of the like research and all these other things, um, as important as it is, I'm like, I want to make sure that my scores are good. 
And so, but I, I recommend it so much because during residency interviews, they want to talk about all this extracurricular. I had one, I remember one interview, one interview I did, the guy, the program director was like, your board scores are amazing. You know, this is, your application's great, but if you don't mind me asking, what were you doing in like year three and year four? I don't see a lot of clubs. And I was like, listen, I was studying, I was studying, studying, <laughs> studying. And, you know, he, he bought that and he's cool with it. But like, you, you know, it, the more involved you are, the better. And the easier it is to answer things and answer questions. And, you know, so I, I think finding your, you know, either something you're passionate about, even if it's unrelated, like even if I had joined clubs, I think on like, you know, medicine and these other things, it just still shows that you're involved and more actively kind of participating. So I highly recommend that. I think it will make your life easier. <laughs> I mean, me personally, um, I've, I've been interested in psychiatry for a long time, even just in an armchair way. And then now coming into medical school, maybe, maybe so for a career. Um, it's just so interesting because it really is a frontier part of medicine, right? I think it's arguably the youngest part of medicine. Um, like one of my favorite Latin phrases is uh, uh, in uh, mensana in corpusano, right? Where it's a healthy mind, a healthy body. So we knew, you know, for hundreds of years that it was important, but we never really had, we know, we did, we knew so little about it. You know, we've come so far from the lobotomies of, you know, Dr. Freeman. Yeah. And the insulin therapies, right? Uh, if any less listeners know, insulin therapies were for schizophrenics. They would put you in an insulin coma, and and you know we didn't have haloperidol and chlorpromazine and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I bring that up as like I have my big question is also like a, a kind of a follow up question for my sister. So shout out to my sister Angelica. She was curious. Um, what would you say is the biggest challenge right now to psychiatry, and are you seeing certain conditions or disorders um, more than others? Yeah, you know, I think, well, I'm in New York, first of all. So, um, you know, anybody that's even stepped into the city for more than a day, you'll see that there's just so much psychiatric demand here. Um, And there's just this huge wide range of psychiatric pathologies, right? Like we see, I see psychosis, depression, I mean, you just name it. There's nothing in the DSM-5 that in four years I won't see here in New York because it's just, it's constant. and, And, you know, for training purposes, that's incredible. Um, and you're right, right? Psychiatry is such a new field. And even a lot of the meds that we use are so new, right? Like antipsychotics and all these, you know, really incredible, um, you know, psychopharm modalities. And now there's like, uh, you know, uh, ECT and TMS and all these new things and ketamine, you know, which I think is super, super cool. And there's, you'll see, I think one of the biggest challenges just, uh, you know, not even diagnostically, but just among all these new maladies so see a lot of the older attendees that are, you know a little bit more pushback um against this intranasal ketamine stuff and so but at the end of the day that's the way the you know that's the direction that we're going i think it's wonderful i think there's a lot of uh really cool and interesting things um happening but i do think one of the one of the things that i've at least witnessed that we we still don't see a lot of improvement is um you know, a lot of schizophrenic patients and a lot of psychotic patients that have really, really intense negative symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think uh, a lot of the positive symptoms, delusions, hearing voices, you know, hallucinations, auditory, visual, that stuff, antipsychotics are incredible medications. I mean, these medications work like rapidly. Um, and so a lot of that stuff, that you're, you know, the medications we have now, Haldol and, you know, prolixinins, that they're 
incredible and they get rid of that stuff pretty quickly but a lot of the negative symptoms the depression the apathy the kind of social withdrawal that stuff is really really hard to get rid of in in psychotic patients it's schizophrenics it's schizoaffective and all these other disorders um and you know i think they're trying to come up with because you know um, if you guys remember from from term two, a lot of the the second gen or the atypical antipsychotics are better for these things. So a little bit better for these kind of negative symptoms and helping, but they're not great. And so I think we'll see a lot of the time we see a lot of these schizophrenic patients, right? Like the meds start working, they're no longer talking to themselves, but they still feel depressed to you. They have that a lot of those negative symptoms, kind of disorganized stuff. And so I think a lot of that. Um, there's trying to do a lot more research now, trying to get maybe you know, some medications to target different receptors that will help with those symptoms. So I think I think that's something I found really really challenging. Um, you know, I'm sure to- I'm sure things too like with you know the fear of like tardive dyskinesia over time that must affect patient compliance, right? They just don't want to take these meds because they don't want to deal with the negative symptoms. Oh, absolutely, and and a lot of you're completely correct, right? A lot of these kind of uh, antipsychotics have a lot of side a lot of them right and so that affects adherence you know pretty pretty intensely um and also just in general the patients that we get psych patients right no one wants to admit that they have a mental illness so it's very difficult to tap into that and to try to work on that insight with with patients and so um i guess on the flip side of this question the one thing that i can say that i think we're making a lot of progress on is long-acting injections so for many years, one of our biggest issues with psych patients is what? It's adherence. It's having a patient who doesn't really think they need it, who doesn't think they have schizophrenia, who doesn't think they're bipolar, and telling them you need to take this med twice a day. You know, that's really difficult for patients to do. Um, and so now we have these long-acting injections and, in, you know, many different medications, which you get an injection once a month, it covers you for the whole month, you don't need to take oral medication every day. And so um, that has been kind of a game changer. And there's a huge push to essentially any patient that you have, that should be where you're going, right? Towards the long acting to improve that adherence. So, um, yeah, I hope that answered your question a little bit. Oh, quite comprehensively. Thank you. <laughs> it's so interesting. I'm, it's, uh, I'm very excited for this interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Do you ever find it um, challenging? I think, like, so obviously, we're all medical students. You've been a medical student before. And how I call it is tipping over the edge when you feel like your mental health, which I still don't know how to fully describe, just you feel like it took a hit or you've surpassed that threshold of what you can handle. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, nowadays, I feel like the the topic of mental health is so saturated with people who are not credible to even have that conversation. For example, like medical influencers, right? They, they post a YouTube video or they'll post an Instagram story or an Instagram mirror or whatever. And they're like, mental health day, <laughs> you know, and they start, they start talking about things you can do for your mental health, you know, like wake up at 5 a.m. and make your coffee or, you know, walk on the sidewalk today for your mental health. And right. it's like, you know, the, the conversation of mental health is very, um, I guess, very subjective in terms of how people handle it. And you never really know what people are dealing with in their head and how they're coping with it. And you never know when their coping strategies are overwhelmed, where it's just not working anymore. And who do you turn to, to get that alleviation of, to get yourself out of that edge that you literally just tipped over. So do you ever feel like you're like, now that you're in the field and you're doing it and you're credible, 
like if what you have to say about mental health, obviously it's something that's impactful and something that is authentic because you're a professional. Do you ever feel like when you, um, I guess the best way to put it would be like when I was a personal trainer back in the day when it was actually, you know, worthwhile to be a personal trainer because I was certified. I had two certifications. So that added value to my personal training. But now in 2022, everybody's a personal trainer. So what does it mean to be a personal trainer now? Like if everybody's a personal trainer, what, what do my certifications have to say? Everybody's a life coach. So do you ever feel, yeah, everybody's a life coach, right? Like, so do you ever feel like, like now, I mean, obviously you're in it, you're seeing patients and you're seeing like the real stuff. Do you ever feel like when you're sc- scrolling through Instagram nowadays and you see people like medical influencers talking about mental health, do you ever go, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> what do you know about mental health? Yeah, man, all the time. Listen, I have a TikTok, right? So oh, you know, I, 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 I 100%, as you're talking the entire time, I'm nodding because I'm like, absolutely. You know, I know exactly um, exactly what you're saying. And, and, it, and it happens a lot, man. And and I do. I will see some advice. I'm like, really? You know, where the heck is this coming from? Or who said that? Or, you know, how the hell does that help? Um, <laughs> but at the end of the day, I do believe I'm, I'm a very big believer in psychiatry. I will say this out of any field, psychiatry is probably the one field where we incorporate more mid-level, um, mid-level professions in any other. And what do I mean by that? Right. A crap ton of PAs, crap ton of nurse practitioners. The new thing that I see a lot in New York is DNP. So doctors and nurse practitioners, um, so our field is very much, you know, there's, and I have worked with some of them, right? Um, not knocking MPs. I'm not knocking PAs. I absolutely think our field is better with every one of these, um, you know, professions in it, but the training is different. Our approach, our clinical approach is very different, right? My sister-in-law is an MP and um, she did her NP online, right? And so the, the no clinical um uh, exposure it was just online and so and these patients or i'm sorry these these providers now you know they can essentially prescribe everything that psychiatrists can and so um so you know you do see things a lot of the time even in my profession not just on tiktok and medical influencers where i'm like i don't think that's evidence-based <laughs> i didn't learn that in medical school i don't know where you got that or i'm not really sure if the dsm says that but you know i think overall the way the way to deal with that is you know the way to deal with that is to at least, at least with the MPs and other people you work with, right? You always just do your job to patient safety is number one, right? So um, if it's affecting patient, you know, safety or patient, you know, this is like just straight up wrong information or, you know, not evidence-based treatment approach, then you say something. At that point, you have to, right? You, you, you follow the, the chain of command and, and, you, and you do what you got to do for patient safety if, if something doesn't make sense. But on the flip side of that, with what you're saying, just medical influencers and things like that, I am a believer, and maybe I'm just very optimistic, but I am a believer, even if the information isn't like 100% correct or 100%, I still prefer to at least have the discussion and have people talking about it, right? So, um, you know, I, I do, I love seeing, you know, all that stuff and TikTokers and this and that and talking about ways to to improve mental health, whether or not a lot of it is evidence-based, at least there's a discussion about it. People are talking about it. We're kind of removing the stigma about it, which is super important. Suicide has been so taboo for so many years, and it still is, absolutely. Um, but there's such an increase now to talk about it. I mean, you know how many residents, I've, I've been in residency like five months, man, and you know how many people, residents have already killed themselves that like 
I feel like once a week I hear about a new one in California and this, and, and it's just constant. And so, you know, I, I, I'm a very a big believer that even if the information is a thousand percent correct, at least the discussions are being had. Um, and, and I think that's important. I do think that's important. Um, now, you know, I will, I will come, <laughs> even though it's, if there's something that's totally wrong, I'm like, let me do my part here and just at least <laughs> clarify or at least comment or at least, but overall, I think most of the discussions are, you know, pretty positive and, and it's always about, you know, more mental health awareness, my program. So I matched at SUNY Downstate. Um, and my program is just wonderful with like getting all of our residents into therapy like you know since pgy1 it is preached that you should have your therapist everybody should have a therapist and i preach this to everyone because i think there's not a soul on this planet that wouldn't benefit from a therapist right and that doesn't have to be a psychiatrist it can be a psychologist it can even be a social worker you know they're trained to do some psychotherapies to talk so you know i i, I am a big believer in that even if you don't need meds everyone should have someone to be able to talk to especially in medical school um, you know, through this entire process where you're seeing hits and hits and, and they get worse even after you leave Grenada, <laughs> you know, until you're three and you're four, it's just stressful. You know, you talk about, like, about mental health with, uh, you know, being a resident and it's kind of like that, you know, physician heal thyself type thing. Um, what kind of strategy do you use personally to make sure, you know, you don't kind of bring the lab coat home? Because, you know, you, you deal with a very unique type of mental pain and trauma with people. Yeah, man. And that's actually a really good question because, um, you know, my mom, when I, when I told my mom I was going to do psychiatry, she, like, cried. Okay. She was, like, devastated. She was, uh, like, no. She's, like, you're throwing away your board scores. Go be a surgeon. Go do something better. <laughs> and it was hard for her because she was, like, you're going you're gonna, to, like, go crazy. She's, like, that profession is so hard. It's going to take such a toll on you. And, you know, I think her experience, too, with my brothers was really hard. And, right. so, um, and I told her, I'm, like, you know, she's over it, by the way. She's very happy on psychiatry. But, you know, I think that it's a very good question because that's something I ask myself a lot. Like, what am I going to do, um, you know, to protect my own mental health, you know, that I don't come home and bring all this kind of heavy, heavy um, stuff with me because psychiatry is, I, I don't think there's many people, and even in other fields, I won't tell you, it is by far the most mentally exhausting. I mean, you're even if you're there for four hours, the amount of stuff you hear and, the, you know, it's, it's intense. And so for me, I have a, a very, my number one rule, I'm actually breaking it right when I leave the hospital, I do not talk medicine. That no is talk, the no talk number talk. one rule. <laughs> no medicine outside of those four walls. Um, and so, I, and that's actually been really good for me, right? Because, you know, all of my friends are all doctors, OBGYNs. And so we have that. Room. I've kind of passed it on to them. So like when we get together, it's, you know, everyone says one or two things about, you know, how their residency is going. And then it's like, that's it. We talk about other things. So I think that's one thing that I that I do that's really important um, to kind of keep work at work. And then when I come home and then the other thing is, I you know, I like to stay busy. Man. I, I'm in New York. There's so much stuff to do. Um, and I think it's super important on those days off. Like, you know, even if if you're kind of tired or you won't call the day before, I'm a big believer on like, push yourself, even if it means like going out to the park, getting a coffee, like it's so easy to just like want to stay in bed after like a call or, um, but I'm a big believer in like, you got to keep your mind busy, you got to keep doing things and also find that balance where you still do things that you used to enjoy or, you know, whether that be, you know, going on a walk, going out for some drinks with some friends, having dinner. So, you know, I think 
finding that balance is difficult. But once you, you know, kind of get into residency, I think it's extremely important. And then of course, therapy. I've got my own therapist. I've got my own psychiatrist, my own, you know, I think that's just too important. Um, and, and there's no, you know, there's no shame in that. And, and I think it should be so normalized across every residency specialty that, you know, it should be every resident should have someone they can talk to. And um, so, so those are some of the things, yeah, I do to kind of keep, keep that balance and, and keep sane. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dr. Kev, you actually brought up something, a couple of points that really just stuck with me. First off, the golden rule of not bringing work from home. I don't know if it's about to break this rule, but uh, a lot of professions in medicine, you know, you'll get friends, you'll get relatives who text you and say, hey, I got this weird rash. What is it? Or, hey, I got this little bump <laughs> on my arm. What is it? Do you ever get like texts and stuff from friends or calls like on, on a psychiatric side as well? Or does it translate or do they ask you like general medical stuff, too? Every day, man. Every single <laughs> day. That's not even. <laughs> yeah. Every single day. I just had a message this morning. My mom. Hey, call me. My friend. I'm look, sorry, I'm looking at my phone right now as we speak. Literally, she was like, hey, my friend, my friend has a question. Um, it's every day. And honestly, that part doesn't bother me too much. You know, it can get a little annoying, but, um, you know, I have no problem doing that. I, I guess my rule is more with, like, when I'm sitting down with friends, when I finally am, like, not doing anything, you know, and we're just talking let's avoid any medicine topic if possible right like that's that's my rule but absolutely man it's part of listen it's part of like you know in my family i'm the first doctor and so it's like totally expected that this is going to happen i knew it was going to happen Patients are not limited to psychiatry which is fine i actually prefer that right because that's the other thing that i thought i'd miss a lot like being a psychiatrist i'm like am i going to miss medicine like you know i i went to medical school like i love learning about medical diseases and um and and what's cool is that you know when you are a psychiatrist you're still an md like before anything else you're an md and so um you know i have no problem giving medical advice as long as i'm comfortable with it as long as it's something i you know i feel comfortable discussing um you know i have no problem prescribing medical you know medications i don't just prescribe psych medications i think it's important you know as a doctor that you look at your patient's entire you know, as a, as a, as an entire kind of, um, holistic approach, right. I don't want to just be able to treat only psychiatric illnesses. I want to be able to look at my patient who's also diabetic, right. And be able to kind of understand which meds he's on and how I can help with that. And so, you know, I think taking that kind of broader approach and just remembering that like, you know, I am a medical doctor. And so I like medical questions personally, you know, um, if they're not just psych and there's something about this or an upper respiratory infection, I, you know, I think it's nice. It keeps me sharp, keeps my medicine, my medicine game strong. So, but, but that happens all the time and you do have to create some boundaries. I mean, you really do because I can't tell you, and, and this is just completely, uh, everybody wants a stimulant these days. So you tell someone they're a psychiatrist, I'm not kidding. Even people I don't know, they're like, Oh, can you prescribe me Adderall? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> like, this is like 2022. This is how people like survive. And so, you know, that is also, you got to create boundaries, right? Oh, I can't do that. I'm sorry. So, you know, I think within, within the realm, but like, if it's something super benign, like my sister-in-law called me yesterday and um, she's a PA, the other, another one that's a PA. And she's like, Hey, I can't get my Synthroid. Right. So her thyroid medication, she's like, I can't get a hold of my doctor. I've been two days without it. Like, help me out, please. Like she sends me her lab values. I have no problem prescribing her and taking over that. You know what I mean? So it's like within, within what, you know, what I feel comfortable doing, um, 
But of course, if someone called me and is asking for, you know, a benzo or a controlled stuff, there's no way that's not happening. Um, so I, I think you just have to create some boundaries, but you all, all three of you better be ready to, to be giving out medical <laughs> advice to friends the moment <laughs> they find out you graduated. That's it. <laughs> Any of my friends watching this, don't send me pictures of your ashes. I don't want it. I don't want to see it. <laughs> it's true. For me, it started happening when, like, so I'm the first in my family to even get a bachelor's degree. Good for you, man. Know, like, all my cousins. Yeah. Like, I live in, like, I have, like, a huge Spanish family. So when my aunts found out that I wanted to go to medical school, I wasn't even in medical school yet. And I'm already getting my mom getting La tierra que tiene un dolor en la barriga. Oh, mom, I don't know what that is. <laughs> I don't know what that is. That's like, how my father is. Domino pain. Anytime we go to the doctor, my, my father, who's, I get some of his hypochondriatic tendencies with certain things, but he will not, he'll be not ignoring the doctor, but he's listening, but he's looking at my face. <laughs> see if I twitch or if I like things, because he'll see that I'm like, I know what the real diagnosis is or something. For and sure. Dr. Lee, he just, so what's really going on? I'm like, dang, fine. <laughs> yeah, and on the flip side of that, it's, it's also a really cool responsibility, right? Like, you know, I'm Puerto Rican, so I'm Hispanic. Kevin, where are you from, by the way, Hispanic-wise? My mom's Ecuadorian and my father's Lebanese. Oh, okay, very nice. So, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, in the Hispanic community, a lot of, like, you know, a lot of hesitancy towards medicine in general, a lot of, you know, I don't, I don't want to call them conspiracy, but just, you know, a lot of ignorance around vaccines and this and, you know, the medical, I, I think the, the Latino community can get influenced, you know, we have our WhatsApp chats and disseminated information <laughs> starts getting sent out about vaccines. And so I think that's also a really cool responsibility that I feel like, you know, I, I carry within my own Hispanic family, you know, first doctor in my family is that, you know, it is a responsibility. And when they ask me these questions, they almost like, you know, it, it, a doctor could have been telling my mom something for six years, but now her son's telling her who's 100%. Yeah. And it's important, man. It, you know, just like you said, your dad's looking at you. Like if you're nodding, your dad's a lot more likely to take his meds to agree with the diagnosis. So it's also cool to have that responsibility. I think, um, you know, that's part of our job to convince people that, you know, we didn't study, we didn't go to school for 15 years for no reason. And that, you know, to believe in medicine and to trust doctors. And so, you know, I, I told, fully embrace that, that role. And I think it's really cool that, you know, that, um, that we have that kind of responsibility to our family, which, which I, I think you guys will also, I guess you guys are already fully embracing. Oh, yes. <laughs> Most reluctantly. <laughs> <laughs> It also gives you like that sense of uh, like being Hispanic and I'm sure you can relate is we have that like, and I'm sure this is for anybody too, but we have that like inner protective factor with people where like, even with our friends, you know, like if we're out, I want to make sure that my friends are safe and they're okay. And we just, we just like to look over and I left on a sidewalk if they're next to the car. I mean, I, I put myself, like if we're going to get hit by a car, I'm going to get hit first, not you, you know? (laughs) So when you when you take it to the level of medicine and like everybody can turn to you when things hit the fan and you know even if it is a rash or it's something within your field there is that sense of like satisfaction where I feel great at the end of the day knowing that people can turn to me when their health is a concern and I can have the questions I can have the answers to their questions you know and it, and you're right it does make the journey of like being in Grenada with no running water in my shower studying 12 hours a day <laughs> 
but you don't study until bars a day. Like, man, I just want to take a nice hot shower and I can't. <laughs> it makes it worth it, bro. It's worth it. It makes it much more worth it. Yeah. Like I was, I was playing. So I, I do, uh, I'm in the intramural flag football team and it was raining and I got covered in mud, covered in mud. And it was a long day. And I'm like, all right, I want to go to my apartment, take a nice hot shower, no running water. I'm like, okay, great. Like that's, so I'm texting all my friends like, Hey, can I, can I go to your apartment? And I went to a zoo and I took a shower there. And I was like, okay, great. So you know, that's just another hit to the mental health. Like, you know, it's just, there's always like something, but that's, I guess it makes it more worthwhile. Like, I guess like, okay, so now like the basic sciences in Grenada are coming to a wrap pretty soon. And then we're entering clinical years. I guess it's just like that progression of you're just constantly going to get hit with curveballs. But then all of that feels, I guess, worthwhile when you do have those small interactions with people who are asking you a simple question and to you it's super simple, but to them it's life-saving and to see the reaction just gives you instant gratification. Absolutely, man. And, and that's the same kind of, you know, even with like we're discussing with family members and friends, that's the same kind of satisfaction you get with when you start kind of with actual patients and, and, you know, it just makes the whole journey so much, you know, worthwhile. And, you know, I, I think, I've had, you know, even as, as a third and fourth year and in, in, as a medical student, just some patient encounters that like really like kind of changed my life, you know, and really changed my perspective. And, and, you know, that's, that's part of the journey, man. That's, you know, I think that makes all the hard work and all the, all the crap we deal with and all the exams so much just worthwhile. So, you know, I think, I think once, once you get into clinicals and those kind of moments that we're talking about start occurring like every day with patients, it's, really encouraging i mean it, it really kind of keeps you going <clears throat> Look, uh, kevin let's say you're uh you're the president of the hospital right they got your, they got a painting a beautiful painting of you on the wall got the little light underneath it and stuff so you're admin now um what are some what would be some big like administrative changes that you'd like to see for psychiatry just as a little the reason why i ask is um accessibility is such a huge issue right uh, i'm from jersey originally but i live in florida um, you know, and my sister wanted to ha have a therapist get checked out by also a psychiatrist as well. And, um, it's just amazing, man. In Florida, the, the facilities are just not there. I yeah. mean, even down to how rude the reception is something that if I was a doctor, I would have friends cold call my office, like just people being rude. You, you're working at a psychiatry office and you're being rude yeah. to a patient calling. Um, the, the best thing I've seen so far, and I know California is now starting to have um, therapist and psychiatrist in the emergency room, which I think is fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is there any big change that you'd want to see, like logistically? So we talked about the pharmacology, but like the logistics of psychiatry. Yeah, man. I, you know, I think you're everything you're saying is so spot on. Um, in, in with how kind of I, I think administrative-wise, it would be the culture. I mean, I, I think like you're saying, if you are in a psych ward, if you are going to a mental health service, you should be treated. Um, with respect, everyone from the person checking you in to the janitor that is, you know, cleaning in the hallway, um, because our patient population is so, 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 so sensitive, right? These are people that have been, um, you know, failed in, on many levels in, in different areas. And so they come to us for help, right? And that one experience, and I've witnessed it, by the way, I will absolutely not give too deep too many details right because i don't want to knock on anyone at my hospital but you see this constantly whether you're a student rotating and you're just like you see someone interact with a patient in a certain way and you're like that is completely inappropriate right and i'm someone that is very much um you know i kind of keep to myself i, I don't like to kind of uh 
get myself involved in altercations, tend to be a little bit more passive. But when it comes to patient care, if I see someone talking to a patient like that, or I see something like that, that's kind of where I draw my line, right? And so I just think from from an administrative, right, let's say I am the president, I think that the culture has to be there. It's got to be everyone that works at this place has to be trained on how we deal with this patient population, right? Um, and, and something that, and I'll just kind of give here, I guess, a little nod to my hospital is that they they really work so hard at that, right? Like, um, we have what we call behavioral health um, um, associates, so BHAs, and these guys are not psych trained. They're not therapists. I think 80% of them don't even have college degrees, but they know how to deal with patients better, I swear to you, than probably like 60% of our like psych staff. And it's because they're trained on how to de-escalate situations. They're trained on how to, you know, confront these kind of, you know, patients are very agitated, clearly floridly psychotic, and they're trained how to redirect them and how to talk to them. And, and so I think that if, if you train, you know, all staff to do that, I just think patients get so much more of a, you know, a better impression about what we do as psych. And also it just helps with the therapeutic alliance, right? Like if a patient gets treated poorly while they're checking in, what's going to make them even want to stay there? To, you know, the hour till he can see a psychiatrist. And so I think from a culture standpoint, um, that is something that that's purely administrative, right? How do you learn about this workshops? Um, you have classes where you meet all these professions and you teach them on how to talk to these particular patients and how to deal with these situations. And so, you know, I think that is something that I'm proud of our program. I really do believe that the administration is doing really well. Um, but I, I see that a lot as well. And by the way, I'm from Florida too. I've been in Florida a long time. So I, I know what you're talking about with those deficits and, um, you know, and, and we're also really blessed up here in New York because we have what's called the CPEP. I don't know. Have any of you ever heard of the CPEP? C-P-E-P? No. Okay. So it's essentially like uh, when you said that now there's psychiatrists in certain emergency departments, that is what the CPEP is. It's amazing. It's literally... Mm -hmm. It's an emergency department for psych. So we have 30 beds. We have, and everybody is psych trained. So it's the emergency room will be here and then the psychiatric emergency. And by the way, CPAP stands for Comprehensive Psychiatric Emergency Program. Very few states are doing this. New York is very, um, I think we're really blessed because there's a lot of mental health you know, funding and all these kind of initiatives. So New York has CPEPs all over the entire city. Um, and they're wonderful because this is like, you know, you're not just going to an emergency department and then they have to kind of figure out, oh, it's a psych and then wait till you get transferred. No, they just send you straight over to our psychiatric emergency department. Yeah. Um, and so I think from an administrative standpoint, the one thing I would absolutely do is have more CPEPs. Like this should be nationwide, right? Like this should be all over the U.S., it should be there's a emergency department for health issues, and there's an emergency department for psychiatric issues. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know how it is in Florida, where like when I was in prison for a while, I won't say where, but um, you know, do you Baker Act them, and then we the docs would say, you know, you give them vitamin H, you just give them Haldol, and yep. that's it. You know, yeah, uh, <laughs> And I am very familiar with Baker Act. When I came up here, all my even my family members, they still tell me, you know, my mom, she always asks about patients and stories. And, 
And, you know, I'll be telling her and she's like, oh, did they babe crack them? I'm like, well, we don't call it that over here, mom. That's a Florida thing. But yes, essentially. So, <laughs> so yeah. I think there was a, a CPAP in, in Jersey up by, uh, where was it? Um, where I think it was near Bergen Community College. So that's around Paramus. Or it's like out on the outskirts of Paramus um, that I've seen before. And I thought it was interesting when I found that out. Because I'm like, yeah. so emergency medicine is, a, is like an interest in mine. Mm-hmm. And I always thought to myself, like, so when I was in the ER and like during, during college and we would get psych patients, the ER doc would always page the psychiatrist. Mind you, the patient would come in around, I don't know, midnight, one o'clock in the morning, but the psychiatrist wouldn't actually come see the patient until the morning. Right. So like so they got, they got, or something, which is ridiculous. Yeah. Or they'll send like a caseworker and the caseworker will come down and the caseworker will just go question after question after question after question and just exhaust the patient, you know, throughout the middle of the night until the psychiatrist comes in. Um, So I always thought to myself, like, that would be interesting if, you know, there's services out there that if someone is tiptoeing that line and they tip over that edge with their mental health and they get deteriorated, you know, somewhere they can turn to and like go and get those services at an efficient process where you can just walk in, no discrimination. Everybody's a professional, you know, what's going on. We can have an open dialogue and we can, you know, you can get the help that you need. So when I found out that there was one of them in Jersey, I asked, I told myself like, you know, why is there more of these? And we're urging cares everywhere right. for literally the, the littlest things. Like I think urgent cares hurt primary care medicine because now urgent cares are becoming like, Oh, I need a medication refill. I need uh, to see this sore throat. And they're going to an urgent care. And they really should be going to the primary care doctor for those those type of things. Absolutely. So if you have urgent cares in a setting where it's taking away the patients that should be going to family medicine, why not have urgent cares that are catered towards psychiatry, where if you're tipping over that edge and you need to just quickly see someone because your coping strategies are not working and you don't know who to turn to, you don't know who to call, or you do call and they just don't help you out. You know, being able to go to urgent care and get someone professional who can help you and not a TikTok influencer, I think is really important. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and Jersey is, by the way, yes, absolutely. Another state that does the CPAP. I think it's all the like Northeast states up here. Like I think Connecticut also might have some CPAPs. Um, but, but you're right. I mean, you're 100% correct, right? That's the whole point of the CPAP is that like um, that people should be able to like go to like a psychiatric emergency room. Like if they're having a psychiatric break, we catch them early, we get to help them. Um, and, 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 you know, you're right. A lot of these places they'll come in and you got to wait for the psychiatrist because psychiatrist, no, no psychiatrist is rushing into a hospital at 2 a.m. All right. That's part of why I'm in this field. Right. Um, but, but having, you know, psychiatrist 24 seven on call is that's the way to go. That's, that's the right move. That's, that's kind of where things are headed to. And I think having more funding and, and a lot of this awareness stuff is just improving that. So, you know, I think overall we're really headed in the right direction with like, um, you know, with the resources, I just, I want to start seeing it on a more kind of bigger scale. I want to start seeing CPEPs in Florida. I want to see them in Virginia. And, you know, I think eventually it, it will. Um, so I think we're headed in the right direction on that, on that sense. Yeah, for sure. And I really appreciate, oh, sorry, go ahead, Clint. Uh, continuing the conversation with culture, but we talked about deficits in the healthcare field. I feel like communities too, you know, sometimes those deficits can come from there. You know, sometimes you'll have uh, cultural upbringings where a mental or a psychiatric disorder might be overlooked or overshadowed, or they might be told, hey, you know, you don't have this, you don't have that. Um, but in reality, these patients should be 
treated as patients and should be treated. So do you think there's any community cultural changes that should occur that kind of complement what changes we need to see in the hospital system? Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, you know, I'm I'm in, like I said, in Brooklyn. I'm in flat I'm on really close to Flatbush. So I'm at Kings County Hospital, which is a really diverse population. Lots of they kind of call this area a little Caribbean. Um, so we get a lot of Haitian patients, a lot of Dominican, Jamaican, um, and and culture is everything. I mean, culture will guide how patients respond, um, whether or not patients take certain medications, whether or not they believe the diagnosis you've given them, which means what? If they believe it, they'll take their meds. If they don't, they won't. And so it, it's extremely important. And I think as a psychiatrist, part of my job every time I see a patient is education. It's family education. It's being aware, tapping into these culturally sensitive topics, right? I'm Puerto Rican. So, um, you know, mental health is not something we talk about a lot. And when we do, it's usually in the context of they need to go to church or, uh, you know, it's very difficult for a Puerto Rican to understand, oh, you know, negative symptoms of schizophrenia. That's why uh, my kid is not making his bed in the morning. That's why he stays in his room. That's why it's not because he's lazy. It's not because he needs to go to church or he needs more friends. It's because they're negative symptoms. This is schizophrenia. This is that stuff. Part of my job is just when I when I meet a patient for the first time is is talking to the family members, educating them, explaining to them what schizophrenia is, right? And and I think when you're culturally aware and you realize, okay, this is, you know, this is how this certain patient population views mental health, or this is how Haitians, what they think about this medication. When you when you tap into these kind of, um, and, and you're more aware of it, then I think it just makes you a better physician and you're able to respond to it. Because if we ignore it, then um, nothing will get done, right? If we're not able to realize, oh, yeah, maybe they're not going to believe my diagnosis. Maybe I got to word this differently. I got to explain it to them. If we're not aware of that, then, you know, patients aren't going to improve. And so I think it's so important to be very kind of culturally aware of where you work, especially, right? Um, your specific kind of patient population, um, because, um, you know, if you don't, it's just patients aren't going to, they're not going to do well. And, and I think family education is something that I've learned is just super, super important. Um, with, with, uh, that's a good point you bring up too. Like, I just, I find it so like exciting that we can relate to the Hispanic culture because I remember when I was younger, I would, you know, tell my mom particular situations that I'm going through that are taking a hit on my mental health or my mental state, at least in that particular moment. And then my mom would just fall out, look me in the face and go, you just got to be a man. <laughs> like, okay, that's not what I want to hear. You know, it's just yeah, like in the, in the Hispanic culture, and I'm sure it's like this in a lot of other cultures as well, but like how we were raised, there was just such toxic masculinity and we can't talk about our mental health. It's frowned upon. Like I can't, I can't call my mom or call like my cousins and talk about my mental health and tell them how I'm feeling because then I'll look down, I'll be, I'll get looked down upon. You know, like I remember one time my mom took me to the hospital to the emergency department and I was super young and she looks to the doctor and she's like, you need to check him out. And he's like, what's wrong? She's like, he's lazy. <laughs> you know, like, can you imagine that? You know, like my mom took me to the ER because she thought I was being lazy, you know? So. And, and like, and it, Italians are the same way. Um, you know, uh, my father has panic disorder. Um, mm -hmm. so, so do I, but, um, you know, men don't go to the, 
the doctor to begin with, right? Pretty much across cultures, but especially in Hispanic and Italian culture. And I was just lucky where this is kind of just shine on what you say with the family education is so important. I was very lucky and blessed. Um, you know, love you, dad. You, he always told me when I had my first panic attack and all the depressive episodes, you know, I had him there to explain to me what was going on and the open transparency and, and understanding that it's a, this is a medical thing. This is right. not, you need to grow, grow up and deal with it. And um, I'm hoping that as, you know, time is going on, the generations are, we're getting better at it now. I think we're starting to acknowledge that these things are real. They are illnesses. And, um, you know, that intimate relationship between practitioner, patient and family, I think is getting a lot better. It's a very strong triad. Absolutely. And I, and I think that's part of our job is to, you know, educate everyone because this stuff gets passed on to the next generations right if we if we can explain this to to you know someone our age now when they have their kids they're going to be aware of it. they're going to understand it right so it's almost like ending a lot of this generational like misinformation and 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 so i i just think to you know to quentin's, to quentin's question about culture it's it, it comes down directly to that and just being able to like be aware of where you're working and how to kind of um, fix a lot of these stuff you know there's a lot of ignorance and a lot of people just you know there's a lot of fear a lot of these decisions from people just come from fear not knowing not understanding they've been treated poorly in the past by a medical provider and you know that that's it that's all it takes is one bad experience for people to like really have a lot of distrust um so yeah so SGU, we're kind of taught that the DSM-5 is like the holy grail. You know, you got to learn every single line of it. And I'm turning turn five now. And actually, the module we're doing is psych-related. So I'm going through, I'm memorizing all those little bullet points. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In your field, would you say that, you know, you rely more so on instinct? Or are you, you know, well-versed in DSM-5? You know, you can say every every requirement that they need. So do you rely more so on the book or do you think, you know, my instincts telling me that this patient should be diagnosed and treated, you know, can you walk me through that process? Yeah, man, I, that's a really good question. And I, and I think honestly, it's both. I mean, the, the short answer is that it's both, right? The DSM-5 guides kind of everything for us. It's how we come up with clinical diagnoses. It's how we even um, kind of start thinking about treatments and stuff. So, you know, it's extremely important. Um, it's an incredible, incredible um, manual um that really helped kind of before the dsm like psych was kind of the wild wild west right like you could there no one differing diagnoses and so i think it helped kind of streamline a lot of things um but at the end of the day when you're in a room and that you're meeting a patient for the first time and they're coming in and they're handcuffed and you have no idea what's going on you got you know a couple cops in there it's a lot of it is instinct you're going by you know your 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 um your impression, right? I mean, uh, you know, a lot of my my thing is I'll leave a room and I'm like, you know, I don't know. I think this could be substance. I'm not 100% sure. But you go by a lot of, you know, cues and 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 what you're picking up just from talking and, you know, your observations, the way they're, you know, the way they're talking, the way their thought process is. A lot of, you know, a lot of psychotic patients are not floridly psychotic, though they know how to kind of disguise it or how to kind of turn it on and turn it off. And so a lot of it is gut feeling and a lot of kind of instinct and 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 kind of what your impression but at the you know, in order to come up with diagnoses, in order to kind of formulate a patient, you know, the DSM, you have to have a good foundation on the DSM. Um, and you know, I think 
forever, it doesn't matter how long you've been in this field, two different psychiatrists will can even have a different diagnosis. You know, I think for the most part, we've gotten pretty good at like, um, you know, kind of coming up with this, but it's psychiatry is very subjective. It just is right. Um, so I can diagnose someone with, with, you know, schizoaffective cause I see some mood component and another psychiatrist will label them schizophrenic. And you'll see this a lot actually. So patients will come in and they have like 30 diagnoses, bipolar, schizoaffective, schizophrenia, borderline. It's like, you know, and, and that's not necessarily good because it's kind of confusing if there's like, you know, 30 different diagnoses, but my job, when, when a patient always comes in and they have all of this, I always say my job is to kind of figure out which one it really is, right? So I think that's also really important is that a lot of diagnoses and stuff can kind of get stuck onto patient charts. And so when I see a patient, sure, I look at it. It's important information to know what meds they've been on, what diagnoses they have. But, you know, I always assess a patient like starting over, right? Like what, what am I seeing? Do I really, do I agree with schizophrenia? Do I agree with bipolar? So I think that's really important is to always have some kind of curiosity and some some degree of questioning um, because, you know, that's that's part of that's part of, I think, our responsibility to our patients to make sure that that we're giving them the right diagnoses and that we're treating them the right way. So both both of them. Great question. Even better answer. <laughs> yeah, I was looking for it. <laughs> So what would you say to the SGU student who is interested in going to psychiatry now, like a term five, going into clinical years, wanting to go to psychiatry? Like, what would be, I guess, a good way for them to buff up their resume for applications? Yeah. Listen, at the end of the day, I'm going to just be transparent here. At the end of the day, the only thing that matters is your step score. I don't care what specialty you go into. I, I probably sound like Dr. Madden now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had those meetings already. Have y'all started having those Dr. Madden meetings? I had mine. Okay. Yep. They're, they will scare the crap out of you and, um, and take it all with a grain of salt. But at the end of the day, man, the only thing that matters, or I should say the number one thing that matters are board scores. It is. All right. Step one is now pass fail. That's really good news for, I think, you guys, um, because you just get your P pass. And then kill step two. Step two is easier. Um, people do much better in step two than they did in step one. And so I think overall, at first, there was a lot of people afraid, like, oh, how is this going to affect Caribbean schools and IMGs? And um, I think at the end of the day, it will eventually end up helping us. You know, I think um, the other thing is just SGU in general prepares really well for boards. They really do. I mean, um, you know, I think our curriculum is so rigorous and the fact that SGU is constantly doing these exams where there's cumulative information, you're having to constantly keep studying old material. That's the right way to, to prepare because that's what you have to do for step one. That's what you have to do for step two. Um, so my number one always advice I tutor for step two now, um, is you have to do well in boards that, that gets your foot in the door, right? You don't have to do amazing, but just do well. All right. Um, and the other thing is fields like psych, there's just super competitive now. Board scores isn't the end all. And they'll tell you that. Right. They if there's two people that have you know similar scores, psych program directors will tell you they have no problem taking someone with a little bit of a lower score if there's something else. Right. And the, for psych in particular, the thing that I've seen a lot of program directors care about is 
like intention. Like, why do you want to be a psychiatrist? Right. Um, and, and they love when there's like a personal story or when there's, you know, they just want, they want to see that you're going to truly be happy, passionate in this field and why. Um, so I always tell, you know, all the people that I know that are applying psych, like when they ask you why psychiatry, like have a good answer for that. Right. Like they don't just want you to be like, Oh, it was like my backup choice or, and, and, and back then psych used to be like that. So they were kind of used to that. And I think now the fact that like it's getting competitive, they can actually take people that they really want and people that really want to do psychiatry. And so a lot of it is getting shifted to show me why you're passionate about psychiatry. So getting involved in like any organization or any nonprofit or any kind of psychiatry research, I think is a huge, huge um, positive. Um, and, and then just, you know, being genuine about, about why you want to do psychiatry will, will get you a long way. And so um, I, I think early on, like in, in on the island, there's, I, I don't know if I have any advice of like particular things to do in psychiatry. Um, but once you get to clinicals, third and fourth year, the earlier you can find that like psychiatrist attending who's doing a research project, doing, you know, any kind of poster presentation, if you can hop in on that, it will go a long way when you get to residency interviews and you have to do one step. So just study for step, take as long as you need for step. But that is my number one advice, even if it means delaying clinicals, like step is not the exam to mess around with. Um, and it's totally doable, man. It's literally like a SGU exam with 300 questions. Like it just is at the end of the day, that's what it is. So, um, SGU does a really good job of preparing you for that. And so if, if you do well on your boards, you will be able to get into any specialty because SGU can get into any specialty. And I genuinely, uh, mean that I've seen it with so many of my friends. That's motivating. That's actually very inspiring because someone has a term five who is getting those talks right now. You're thinking like, okay, now I'm finally going to start being compared to everyone else. You know, the U.S. students, the DO students, yeah. my my, co my my colleagues here now too. How do I separate myself from the crowd? And I think that was actually the best way to put it. Focus on the scores that put you in the conversation. Then once you're in the conversation, how do you separate yourself? And I think finding your passion is definitely that number one thing too. And it is it is nice to hear that, you know, there's just so many rumors and misinformation about SGU. Um, it hit me very hard personally before I applied. I was very, very, very nervous. Did not know if I was making the right move. Um, my MCAT scores were expiring because I was my second time applying. I'm right. like, I can keep the ball rolling. But um, it's great to hear that from you. Um, and I remember one of my mentors, he's a vascular surgeon. Mm -hmm. he, he went right here. Yeah, dude. There, I mean, it, it's true. It's like we have so many, like we have the largest network of doctors. So no matter what hospital you go to, I don't care if it's Mayo Clinic, the Cleveland Clinic, someone from SGU is there. And it is so cool because you will go into any of these hospitals. You start asking enough people, oh, where'd you go? Where'd you go? You will run into SGU people everywhere. And it's wonderful, too. It's a great networking because for the most part, like we kind of take care of each other, you know, even attendings. When you tell an attending, if they went to SGU, I don't care how old they are, what kind of surgeon they are. They love that. It's like, yeah. And so it's really cool to know that, that we have this large network that's everywhere. Um, but I think it's even cooler to know that there's not a single specialty that SU hasn't matched it to. I mean, there isn't. Sure, we're not getting like, you know, 15 uh, dermatologists every year, but neither is any other med school in the entire world, right? Like these are all competitive specialties, no matter where you go. 
Um, so, you know, I, I genuinely believe that our only limitation is the same limitation that U.S. med students have, which is what? Board scores and this and that. So that's why my advice is if you kill your board scores, it opens all the same opportunities for that anyone else has. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I think it gets a bad rap because people hear Caribbean schools, but SGU is very different than the Caribbean schools. Very different. Like I always say, like this ain't you know Harvard, but it's the Harvard of the Caribbean. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's always make that joke too. It's very different, right? I mean, it's like you can't compare. You really can't. I mean, you just can't compare us to like other IMGs. We have like a thousand one hundred doctors that become residents into the U.S residency match every single year it's like great math so, can't argue the numbers yeah you can't argue we're the number one provider of doctors for years and years and years no one can even come close partly because our class is so big but that just means we're matching right and so um i don't have a single friend and i you know i have a lot of friends from SU. i think maybe one that didn't match like last year but is matching for sure this year i mean everybody matches for the most part um and so i just you know i'm, I'm a big believer in that just because you know i i during the entire residency interview i did not feel a single limitation i genuinely could say that i didn't feel like i was at a disadvantage at any point i had to turn back interviews i had over like 30 interviews and it was like getting too much um and that's multiple friends of mine that were like they had to start turning back and you know i'm talking to u.s u.s med students and they're only getting four interviews and five and i'm over here so you know there's just there's no limitation the sky's the limit you do well, um, and, and you know, and you, and you want it bad enough. There's SGU prepares you well, and and um, and I genuinely believe we are not at a disadvantage. <clears throat> that's extremely ring because, like, I think I think the mentality that some U.S. medical students might fall under is, I'm in a U.S. med school, I'm guaranteed wherever I'm going to go, and then SGU students, like, we're all we're all go-getters. We're all self-sufficient. Yes. We're self-reliant. And being here in Grenada just kind of forces us to really amplify those qualities that we have. And when we go to the hospitals or when we go to those interviews, program directors just kind of know that this is the culture. Like SGU just develops a, t a particular culture of students that they know that they can just count on us. And I've seen it a lot too. Like now that we started the podcast and I'm reaching out to a lot of physicians, you know, that graduated out of SGU, I'm starting to really recognize like we have a lot of heavy hitters, you know, yeah. we have a lot of doctors that are in heavy, 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 credible university hospitals. And I'm just like, dude, we're untouchable. Like, I guess yeah. it's just ultimately like, like granted SGU is not going to like hold our hand and be like, here's a residency. Like obviously we have to go out and get it ourselves, but they definitely provide us with the tools that we need. So sometimes and I don't want to be that guy, you know, that's, that sounds too like, oh, yeah, you know, like, like I'll hear I'll hear people talk like, oh, you know, the professors, this, SGU, that. And I'm just like, dude, like, stop trying to have someone hold your hand. They're giving you everything you need. It just comes down to how bad you want it. You know, like, sure. It, could it be like, could some aspects be improved? Absolutely. But that's every system. Absolutely. Anywhere you go can get can be improved. But like, take what's given. And make the best of it and just put your head down and work and lay everything out there. Because if you do get that residency or if you don't get that residency, the last thing you want is to say, I could have done better. You know, because then that becomes that becomes a self issue, not an external issue. You just got to yeah. be behind the so, wheel. 
And, and it's funny that, yeah. you, that you've already seen that because in clinical years, that's usually when people start realizing, wow, SG has like a good rep, like, you know, at these clinical sites and stuff like, um, and, and you're already seeing that now, which is cool because you will see that once you get into third year, fourth year, you, you will see that generally SGU is regarded as like, like you said, pretty hardworking, usually pretty humble because, you know, there is that sense of like, you know, US versus us. So we're, you know, tend to be really humble, hardworking because we want to prove ourselves. Um, and, and it, honestly, it's created a good culture. We also like compared to like us med schools, like we're very close as well, which is interesting. Um, you know, always willing to help each other out. Like the culture in a lot of med students is very competitive amongst each other. And you don't get that sense, um, at least not to that same degree in the IMG community. Like at SGU, we're always willing to like help each other out, you know, during rotations, things like that. Um, so I just, I think SGU is just absolutely, uh, you know, they know what they're doing uh, and I'm a big believer in it. And, um, and I just, I think that as, as we continue to kind of expand, uh, you know, there's just, there's no way you will ever be able to work at a hospital and not run into someone from SGU. I mean, it's just, that's, a, that's where we're headed, um, which I think is really, really cool to be a part of that community. Um, so, Yeah. It's extremely motivating, and I really appreciate you saying that because you're you have the credit, you know, like you're you you chose psychiatry, you got into psychiatry, you're in you're in Brooklyn, New York, you know, that's where everybody wants to go. That's the East Coast. It's a beautiful city to be in. You're getting all this experience, so you have, you know, you have you you can back up your words, and I think a lot of people need to be aware that that negative culture that every school can have, but the negative culture that SU specifically has it needs to get deteriorated you know and if we're and if we're the people that are going to get this new culture out like it, you know look at it from a positive lens then i'm all for it and it's and i, and I appreciate you putting all those words together because people need to hear those words you know they need to hear it from someone who did it and that's really encouraging absolutely so i think that's a that's a, a that's a good point to i guess wrap things up um do you guys have any last questions when you want to say anything or uh, more compliment than question, but I mean, hey, if anything, I have a lot of respect for this field. I had a lot of respect going in, but way more after hearing it from someone who's legitimately, you know, in the trenches doing the groundwork. Um, I wanna, I wanna see this for myself when I get to clinical years. So I'm more excited for my second rotation, and uh, we're all East Coast kids. We're actually all Jersey natives. So, hey, man, uh, I'm right there with you. This is gonna be a ball and a half. So. Can't wait to get started. So thanks for coming on, Dr. Kev. Yeah, man. Make sure you guys uh when you do when you get to psych psych uh your clinicals, pick pick Kings County. I'll be I'll hopefully be your resident or something. That's all the <laughs> students come through. So yeah. Yeah, and same thing, Kevin. Thank you so much for coming on. I mean, we really hit like a lot of topical issues here, straight logistics, uh the ethos of the field. Um well, this is also not a paid advertisement for SGU. I feel like we really beefed it up here. I hope people, <laughs> I hope people really understand that, you know, the school's powerful and that you're yep. hearing it right from the source from a doctor back home. So I uh, thank you so much for coming on. Really enjoyed having you here. Yeah, man. Take care, you guys. Keep keep crushing it over there. And I'm uh, happy I could help. If you all have any questions, as always, about anything, feel free to reach out, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, of course. So that's episode four with Kevin. SGU alumni, you heard it here first at IAA. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you at the next one.